Welcome, everyone. You're among friends here. So glad you joined us today. This is a friendly place with a lot of friends, and you will feel welcome. I am quite sure by the end of the time we're together, you may feel challenged or stretched or something else, but we want you to know you're welcome here. This is a non-judgmental zone. It's a challenge zone where we stretch toward God's high calling, and we try to develop faith, and we define faith the way we use it here, as faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. So glad you're here. I am a real pastor, not a makeup one. I didn't get my ordination on the internet. I'm the pastor of Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. If you're ever in our neck of the woods in southwest Florida, stop by. We'd be glad to welcome you to our Sunday service. I think you'd find that just like here, you're among friends at our church, and I hope your church is that way too, where you always go and you feel like you're among friends. Well, today I have something really helpful for us, and especially if you have ever struggled, and truthfully, most of us, well, maybe not most, but at least many of us have struggled with this idea of looking at life as the glass half full or half empty. Some of us have struggled with trying to make the best of things. And I heard somebody say something real interesting about this tendency that some of us have to keep battling. I've had that struggle more and less during my life as well. But they described this not, you know, we usually think of it as a positive attitude or a positive outlook or or being a pessimist, something like that. But I heard someone recently describe this in relation to a book they had read. And they described our tendency to look into the future and to and to see all the things that might go wrong as as are you ready for this? This is quite an interesting statement. But our tendency to look into the future and and imagine all the things that could could go wrong, they said that's what they called constructing future hells. And I thought that was quite interesting. Now, there is a future hell that you want to avoid. And that's one of the things we want to help you with on this program. So you'll have confidence in God and follow him. Because we want you to avoid that one particular future hell. Now, what they meant by their statement was, people spend a lot of time, too much time, some people more time than others, constructing future hells or imagining all the things that might go wrong. And so that paralyzes them and... And usually it makes us miserable. At least it does when I do that to a fault. Now, I'm not talking about thinking things through. Don't make that mistake. You know, we're not talking about being careful to, to evaluate how things might go and to avoid things that might turn out badly because of something you do now. I'm talking about the tendency to, to dwell between our ears and too often imagine all the future pain, problems, trouble that might result. And as, and the consequence of that is people become paralyzed and they don't try and they don't do things that they otherwise might enjoy doing. They don't do things they might be at some point in life really good at. So we got good news. We're going to talk about this idea of constructing future hells. And, and in case you're a little nervous about that, let me help you one step further. Also in this same uh, podcast I was listening to, actually, they were talking about the idea that some of us have a tendency to allow our circumstances to dictate the way we feel. And, you know, a lot of people struggle with that. I don't think that's a, a great revelation. I think we all understand that, that that's a, just a 
challenge we have to live with. And so we need to figure out how to how to overcome that. And and one of the things that that they said on this um, conversation that I was listening to on this podcast was that the problem is that we only look at some of our circumstances. And the light went on in my brain there. I don't know if it does for you, but isn't that true? We get distracted by some circumstances and related to that as we compare our certain specific circumstances with somebody else's. Maybe they have a bright, shiny new car and we don't. And then so then we begin to evaluate and say, well, woe is me because I don't have or my life is not like or whatever. And so we focus on certain circumstances that drag us down. In the scheme of things, and you know that if you've ever had a new car, in the scheme of things, the new wears off pretty quick. But there are other things about life that endure. And maybe one of the things we can help each other with is thinking about the right circumstances to focus on. So we're going to do that. And and it also kind of got my attention because I saw this quote. I assume it's true because of, of the source of it. The gentleman I respect a lot posted this. And he gives credit to a man named James White for saying it. He says, we are becoming a society of infants. We are becoming a people who are ruled by their emotions and hence are so easily controlled. And boy, that got my attention too, because that's what happens when we look at our circumstances. That's what happens when we construct future hells for ourselves in our minds. We end up being dominated and ruled by those emotions and they drive us and people can use emotions to control us. So let's not let our emotions get to us. In fact, that's one of the reasons that I think God tells us not to be afraid. Over and over in the Bible, he says, fear not. And if we are prone to being afraid, people will control us because they will tell us how to avoid that thing we fear. So anyway, we're going to get to all of that. But as as usual, there's a lot of things that, that we want to get to. And one of the things that I want us to get to is, and I don't know if you saw this reported where you live, but you may have. But not long ago, a citizen, a gentleman, was addressing a Florida school board, and they kicked him out of the meeting. Well, you might say, what was he up to? Well, I'll explain, as I understand it, what he was up to and and why this is an outrage. I've been to school board meetings in Florida. I've been to a couple of counties worth of school board meetings. I haven't been to every county. But this took place in Indian River in Florida. And in Florida, every county is a school district. I should clarify that. Other places in the country, it's not that way. But in Florida, our school districts are defined by the counties we live in. So this is Indian River School District in Indian River County. And at the beginning of school board meetings, as far as I know, it's always this way. I don't know if it's required to be at the beginning, but I think so. I think by law, they have to do it at the beginning. At the beginning of the meeting, there's a period of time called public comment. And citizens, people like you and I, are welcome to step up to the microphone and address the school board on a topic that we're concerned about. During this public comment, it's not restricted to a certain set of topics. You can bring anything you would like to the attention of the school board. Often you will have three minutes to make your presentation. Sometimes it's less if there are many people wanting to speak. It is almost always 
cut down to two minutes or maybe even one minute where you get your opportunity to address the school board. Uh, a lot of times when I've been, it's because it's been something that a lot of people were concerned about. And so you learn to make your case in 60 or or 120 seconds to get that out there. But anyway, I don't know the time limits on this, but the gentleman stepped up to the microphone during a legitimate time when the school board is supposed to listen to citizen input. And, and by the way, just in case you wonder, similar things happen at committee meetings in Tallahassee. I've been to a number of those. And at all of those meetings, there is a time for people to comment on the business that's before that committee. And so before they vote, they have this public comment time. And I've spoken at a number of committees, testified on behalf of legislation or sometimes against legislation. Uh, It's a common practice in Florida. I think it's probably similar in, in lots of states. So back to the school board meeting. This gentleman gets up and he begins to read to them from a book that's in one of their middle schools. Now, middle school in Florida, probably where you are is from grades six, seven, and eight. A little different than when some of us went to school when we have junior high, but six, seven, eight, middle school students, kids. Not exactly, maybe we wouldn't call them children because they're growing up, but they certainly aren't adults. They're minor children by law. So he gets up and he starts reading from this book, and I would not begin to read you what he read, okay? I just wouldn't. It was awful. It was terrible. It was offensive. Some would call it pornographic, and I wouldn't argue with them. He's reading this book that's available to middle school students in Indian River County, Florida. He doesn't get very far into it, then the school board shuts him down, or tries to. He does not stop. He continues on, because that is his right. But eventually, they warn him repeatedly, and finally have him removed by the sheriff's deputies that are attending the meeting. It's common for sheriff's deputies to be present. That's just to make sure that somebody doesn't get in there that's up to no good, and we don't need help to keep order and to protect people, keep people safe. I haven't seen any incident where that was a threat to any of us, but they're always there. And maybe that's why there's no threat, because they're always there. But Anyway, so finally the school board insists that he be uh, escorted out of the meeting. I don't believe he was arrested, but he was forcibly removed from the school board meeting because he was reading content the school board deemed offensive and didn't want to hear, but it was from a book available to middle school students. Now, I want you to keep a couple things in mind here. Now, keep in mind, they were offended that he was reading this. I did not hear them say, but, but I think maybe later in the meeting they did address it. But they should have said it right there, that they were offended by this, not so much because he was reading it and bringing it to their attention, but because how in the world did this get in one of their middle schools in the first place? That's what should have been the primary concern. The school board should have decisively said, we will address this. This should never be in a middle school. Now, maybe they said that later, and I do know that they did remove some books from their schools as a result of this meeting by the Indian River School Board. So that's good. Second thing, though, should really get your attention, and some of you have already thought about this. You're way ahead of the rest of us, and that's good. I'm glad you're ahead of us, but some of us should remember and not miss that this action by the school board is a First Amendment violation. Remember, the First Amendment to the United States Constitution gives us freedom of speech, even freedom of offensive speech. 
And when the school board, a government entity, shut down his speech because they didn't want to hear what he had to say, that's a violation of the First Amendment. Now, legal people out there, you may say, well, but it's predicated on this, or if it's that, or if it's the other thing. Maybe, I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. I never practiced one on TV, and I've never been one on the radio either. So I don't know the law in and out. But on its face, when a government entity, when you have a legal right to speak, guaranteed by the First Amendment, shuts you down, that should get everybody's attention. Now, for all of you who are saying, well, yeah, but he shouldn't have said that kind of stuff at a school board meeting. He shouldn't have had to have said that. But keep in mind, the First Amendment isn't about guaranteeing your freedom and my freedom to speak as long as I don't say anything that you don't like or you don't say anything that I don't like. No, the amendment guarantees that you have a right to speak even if I don't like it, even if I disagree with you you still have a right to speak. And that's important because that's part of our freedom of conscience. That's part of religious liberty. And that's wrapped up in the First Amendment. And you go to the First Amendment of the United States Constitution, and if you haven't gone there, you'll find five freedoms guaranteed. And we, God's people, understand that these freedoms, this liberty, is a gift from God. Our rights come from God. And the government is supposed to preserve those, not take them away. And when they shut that man down, they did not preserve his freedom to speak. They they hindered it. They actually silenced him. That should get all of our attention and be very much cause for concern. Now, I I was particularly aware of this because I'm sure it's been more than a year ago, but I wasn't there. People from our team that, that works with the schools to try to bring about Um, improvements from the Florida Citizens Alliance was there in a Collier County School Board meeting. I've been to some Collier County School Board meetings, and a gentleman there began to read similarly offensive material. It was all an attempt. It wasn't because anybody wanted to be offensive. It was an attempt to get the school board to pay attention because parents had brought this to us and said, this stuff's in our schools. It's an outrage. And so he wanted to get the school board's attention, believing naively, as it turned out, that they would immediately take action to clean that stuff up. Well, we're still working to get stuff cleaned up in Florida. We're making some progress, but it's still a very heavy lift. But in Collier County, he began to read similarly to the man in Indian River County. And the school board interrupted him to silence him. School board meetings are, are streamed on the, on the web so people can watch them, so lots of people could be watching. They, they didn't like what he was saying, and they deemed it offensive and that he should stop. Fortunately, in that instant, instance, the school board attorney stepped in and did the right thing, and kudos to that attorney, and said to the school board, you can't silence him. It's a freedom of speech issue. And he was allowed to continue. Now, all of this to draw your attention to we must stand up to preserve and defend our God-given rights. Always we must, and the church must do that. The people of God must do that. You must do that. Don't wait for someone else. You are the leaders we've been waiting for. Take courage, step up and do it. Partly to defend our rights, and that's a huge, hugely important uh, opportunity, necessity, requirement. But there's another element of this that we should always remember, that when we are standing up for that which is right in our schools, we are protecting our children. And let me say, your children need you to stand up for them. 
I would imagine most people listening to me today have little idea some of the things, too many of the things that our children, your children, your children you love, your grandchildren whose innocence you want to preserve, you would be shocked and amazed and even horrified at what they're being exposed to in schools. It's long past time for us to stand up and to do the right thing. Your children do not know to tell you about these things. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Sometimes you have to ask them questions for them to talk about it. And sometimes you have to ask very specific questions. Maybe I'll tell you some stories about some of that at some point. But for today, can I just remind you, your children need you to stand up for them. When something doesn't pass the smell test, when something gets your attention and and somehow into it intuitively, or might I say, by the spirit of the living God, you, you're you're uh, something happens inside of you that says, "Wait a minute, something doesn't seem right here." Then stand up for your kids, because they really do need your help. Well, let me give you an example. I, I said maybe sometime, but I think we'll go ahead and do it now. In another county in Florida, this was a recent occurrence. A little boy went home from school to happen to go home to his grandmother's and and they were talking about school and his grandmother asked him, well, how was school today? And and he said, well, it was okay. And she asked him another question. He says, well, I got an F. Wow, that got the grandmother's attention. How did you get an F? Well, the boy went on to explain that his class had been studying and his teacher had been explaining things to them about Greek mythology. Not an uncommon thing for kids to learn about. We teach them lots of things. And as part of the lesson then, at the end of that, after the teacher had explained about Greek mythology and some of the gods and so forth like that, she instructed the class, and get this, this is important, she instructed the class to draw a picture of God. Well, she didn't say draw a picture of a specific Greek god that they might have talked about. She said draw a picture of God. Well, the little boy said, nope, I can't do that. That's against my conscience. That's against my Christian ideals. That's against my religion. Well, the teacher said to him, before the whole class, in front of the whole class, the teacher said to him, well, then you get an F on that paper, and anybody that agrees with you will get an F too. Yikes. Can you imagine a kid going through that? I can't. That's horrific. But it happened. True story. In a Florida school. So the grandmother got the story, and and, uh, obviously she was concerned. And the good news of this story is that Florida has protection for those students. And if you're in Florida and you're hearing me talk about this, there's protection for your students too. It's something called the Hope Scholarship. Now, I have said to people, this Hope Scholarship is a gift from God to the students and the families of Florida, and it really is. You, You won't believe it can be true. In fact, when we first started talking about this to people, a number of people said to, to us, uh, this doesn't sound like it can't be right, it can't be true. Uh, it, was, it was remarkable that people just had that first impulse. But anyway, this little guy, thankfully, had a grandmother, parents that stood up for him and went to bat for him, reported this incident, and that qualified him for a HOPE scholarship. Now, what that means is if you have a child in a Florida school, public school, or a charter school, in in Florida, all charter schools are public schools. So if you are in a Florida public school or a Florida charter school, and somebody 
doesn't matter who it is. It can be a teacher, it can be a student, it can be anybody else, does something that is an intimidation to you, a harassment to you, or a threat to you. So clearly, the teacher was threatening this kid with an F and intimidating the whole class into going along with her assignment or risking getting an F. Now, the way I read the law, that whole class was eligible for a HOPE scholarship. Absolutely, because she was intimidating them to go along with her, with her assignment and to not make trouble. Well, under the law, this can be reported to the principal of the school as a HOPE scholarship qualifying incident. You now have the opportunity to report that, and the principal fills out a single-page form Check a couple of boxes, sign your names, and the student is immediately qualified for a HOPE scholarship, which is about, and it varies from county to county, about $7,500 that the state of Florida will send to the school of your choice to pay the tuition. And yes, it can be a private school. It can be a Christian school. It doesn't matter. Now, keep in mind a couple of things. All of the power is in the hands of the parents because if the parents determine that this was an incident, a harassment, an intimidation, or a threat, that's all that's required. The school doesn't have to agree with the parents. No one has to agree with the parents. It's the parents' decision to stand up for their child, and they go and report that, and the principal is obligated by law. And we've seen a number of cases where principals don't want to do this. They either don't know the law or they're trying to intimidate parents. I don't know for sure. A number of times principals don't want to sign the sheet. But they need to sign that form and give you the original copy so that that is yours because that is your guarantee of a HOPE scholarship. Now, keep in mind, you don't have to qualify for a HOPE scholarship. There's not a review board. There's nobody that looks at this form and says, yes, you're in or no, you're out based upon the information on that form. It is an automatic process. That's what the law says. It was passed a number of years ago. The governor signed it into law. It's been in place and students have been benefiting from that ever since. Now, in this particular case, the school district pushed back and didn't want to grant the student didn't want to f- sign the form, so the student had the HOPE scholarship. But our organization was able to escalate it to the Department of Education in Florida. And in pretty short order, I believe it was in 48 hours, that student had his document and was qualified for a HOPE scholarship. And now can go to the school of his choice, paid for at least in part, if not in full, by the state of Florida because he qualified for a HOPE scholarship. See, this is, this is really significant. And this is... This is an example, and there there have been others that we've been involved in. But the idea behind this HOPE scholarship is that it gives parents an opportunity to stand up for their students. Now, the schools don't particularly like this because when they lose a student, they lose a certain amount of funding. In terms of the state, it actually saves the state of Florida money for a student to qualify for a HOPE scholarship. And sometimes people say, well, if I take the scholarship, maybe somebody else who needs it more won't get it. Trust me, the last we heard, there were $70 million in that fund waiting for students to qualify to use it. So that's, that's an example of how in Florida we're, we have that benefit. Now, if you are, are so inclined, you can look up the HOPE scholarship law and take it to your state legislature, your governor. Maybe they would enact just a similar type of legislation in your state. The way the law works, it might need to be a little different, but there are some key elements in that that you shouldn't allow them to change. One of them is don't allow anybody to second guess the parent's decision. 
If the parent decides, that's the qualification, period. End of story. That's very, very important. So anyway, stand up for your kids. They need you to stand up for them. As I said, they're kids. They don't know. They go to school, and, and I know we say this a lot. I'll say it again. They, they, we send them to school, and we tell them to listen to their teachers and do what they're told. Well, that's generally pretty good advice. We want them to do their lessons. We want them to, to learn how to read, to write, to do math problems, all of those things. We want them to understand social studies. We want them to know geography, all those things, history. And so we tell them, listen to your teacher, do your lessons, and follow instructions. Well, kid goes off to school, and he hears that message from his parents, and he or she is determined to do that. And by and large, there's no problem with that. But the difficulty comes when someone at the school gives your child an assignment or makes a statement to them that doesn't line up with what you meant by that statement. So I'm sure those parents would have sent their little guy off to school saying, listen to your teacher and do your lessons. Well, fortunately, he knew better than to try to draw a picture of God because that was offensive to him. And fortunately, he told someone, and fortunately, they got him the Hope Scholarship. But a lot of times, students don't know. They assume that what they're being told by their teacher is what their mom or dad wants them to hear. And the parents generally trust the school. But what we've seen over time, and this is why I say to all of you parents and grandparents, aunts and uncles, when you hear your child say something that's going on at school that just doesn't seem right, believe them. You can investigate, you can check it out, but believe them. Don't assume they're exaggerating. Well, I don't know, some kids, they have a tendency to exaggerate everything. You know your child. But generally speaking, believe them. It may seem outrageous to you that this could be going on, and I've heard some outrageous stuff friend of mine, when she was a little girl, had outrageous things happening, and it was weeks before her mother believed her. But when her mother found out, her mother was absolutely horrified. So the children need you to stand up for them. There's no question about it. They just don't know. They're kids. We don't expect them to know everything. That's why God gave them parents, to watch out for them, to advocate for them, to protect them from all of this stuff. And that's a very important thing, very important for kids. Well, I didn't know I'd spend quite that much time talking about kids. I guess it's important because God really loves the children. Uh, We used to sing a song in in church, Jesus loves the little children of the world, and he does. And over and over, I'm reminded that it's our job, especially in these days, to protect childhood innocence and to make sure our kids have every opportunity to, to grow up as kids and not be subject to all these kinds of crazy things that are going on. And I think that's an important responsibility for the church. It's a vital responsibility for parents. And and as far as I'm concerned, the church needs to back the parents and support them and help them sort all this stuff out because it is a daunting task. So do that. Now, in just a minute, we're going to take a break and give you a chance to to, um, rest from all of my goings-on. But when we get back, we're going to take a look, a serious look, at a story from the Old Testament. Now, we've been following God's people. We started out with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I posed the question, do we really understand what it means when someone says that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? I think I said Joseph, Jacob. 
Joseph was in, in the story, but Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it started with Abraham and God entering into covenant partnership. Remember, God chose Abraham and invited him into covenant partnership. And Abraham said yes. God promised him descendants, and he has had more descendants than can be counted, just like God promised. It started out kind of rocky because Abraham was 75 at that point, and he didn't have his son until 25 years later. But he and his aged wife, by the miraculous touch of God upon them allowed them to have this boy and it became Abraham and Isaac second in line of God's people and then Isaac had Jacob and Esau and God continued to work with his covenant people through the line of Jacob so that's where we get Abraham Isaac and Jacob and Jacob's name at one point when he had an an incident with God wrestled with God all night his name was changed to Israel and so from his children became the nation of Israel. He had 12 sons, 12 tribes, and they became the nation of Israel. One of them was Joseph. You may remember the guy with the coat of many colors. And Joseph ended up in Egypt, sold as a slave by his brothers, who were absolutely outrageous to him, ended up in Potiphar's house. But he was such a good guy, he became second in charge of Potiphar's house. He ran the whole place. Potiphar didn't have to worry about anything until he was lied about, and he ended up in prison because Potiphar's wife lied about Joseph, and Potiphar had no choice but to send him away. Fortunately, he didn't kill him. Joseph ended up in prison, and he was such a good guy that in prison he ended up as the number two guy. And then finally, as circumstances led to him being the number two guy in all of Egypt, and Joseph saved his people and many people from a horrible death as a result of famine. And we've been following their story from there, and we're going to pick it up and run with it when we get back. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. This is Faith Is. Cofix RX Nasal Solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flus, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced. These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system to keep our bodies free from harmful bacteria, viruses, and toxins become less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code out loud. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Be a part of a revolutionary new healthcare system 
that puts your health and well-being above the interests of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought. AmericaOutloud.news, delivering a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. In the fight for liberty and justice for all. America Out Loud Talk Radio. All right, we are back. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and you're listening to Faith Is, and we're stretching each other in God's direction. And I said at the beginning of the program that we were going to provide some help for people who spend too much time in their heads constructing future hells. Now, we reminded ourselves we don't want to go to the hell we all know about. That's a place to avoid. But what we're talking about is all of us who spend too much time thinking about all the what-ifs and the wherefores and end up coming out with the conclusion in our heads that it's all going to be bad if we do something. And we shouldn't try to imagine the worst outcomes to everything. We need to have a little better perspective on all of that. And I believe that God gives us that guidance we need by way of the example of his people and them leaving Egypt and learning how to get along with God on the trek on the way to the promised land. They had a lot of lessons to learn, and, and we want to remind ourselves both of the context where we are and of the, the hope for what we can have when, when God is leading us and we're following in the way he wants us to go. So we recognize that Joseph, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Joseph, Jacob's son, ended up in Egypt. He was remarkably used by God to save the lives of untold numbers of people because of the famine that was coming and how they got ready for that. And we are familiar with the story that Joseph's brothers came to Egypt looking for food, and Joseph found them. They found Joseph, much to their surprise. It ended up that Joseph sent word and had his entire family, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, were at Jacob now, his entire family, Jacob and all of the brothers and their families moved to Egypt. They had a special place set aside for them by the king, Pharaoh, and they thrived there. They did very well. Joseph saved the lives of his family and of countless families. But over time, as the Bible says, the, the king of Egypt forgot about Joseph or some people think he got afraid of Israel and all of the people because they were thriving there because God kept his promise that there would be numerous, countless descendants from Abraham. So now they live there. All of Israel lives in Egypt, and the Pharaoh subjects them to terrible bondage, enslaves them, treats them miserably, and God sends Moses to get them out. The whole process of Moses being delivered from death and then 
how God spoke to him from the burning bush. And then Moses went to Israel, or, or went to Egypt, and said on behalf of Israel to Pharaoh, let my people go, speaking for God, let my people go, that they may worship me. And Pharaoh said, who's God that I should bother with that? And he was convinced by a number of plagues, flies, gnats, all that kind of stuff, darkness, finally the death of the firstborn across Egypt, and they compelled Israel to leave. And so Moses leads God's people out of Egypt. He leads them by a rather interesting and circuitous path and sets up another problem. Now, up to this point, God had demonstrated repeatedly his power over everything that Pharaoh had to throw at him and his people. And he demonstrated that his power was strong enough to deliver his people from the evil of slavery in Egypt. And so God sets up another indication of that. He leads them, and the Bible talks about a cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night. He leads them to a particular geographic spot where they appear to be trapped between the army of Pharaoh who is advancing on them with his elite chariot force and water, and they couldn't get across the water and they couldn't escape the army. What was going to happen? Well, what happened was God set that up quite deliberately and he parted the waters. Moses held out his hand, staff of God in his hand. Water parted and the people went across on dry land. The chariot people tried to follow from Egypt and the mud returned and they got bogged down so they could not advance on God's people and they could not flee. And the waters came back together and annihilated Pharaoh's elite chariot force that had been chasing God's people. So in a dramatic way, they were delivered from evil again. Well, they continued on through and God kept leading them with this cloud by day and fire by night. They get to a place called Mara where there was water that they needed, but the water was bitter. They couldn't drink it. Well, if you're familiar with that part of the country, you know that it's a rather barren area. And when people traveled through there, they had a real problem if they couldn't find water. Water was very important. In fact, you couldn't have a city or a settlement unless you had two things, water and a way to defend yourself. And so that was very significant when they were in that part of the country, this idea of finding water. Well, when this water was bitter, God miraculously provided for them and made the the undrinkable water drinkable. And so he provided for them, again, one of the basic necessities of life, God provided in a miraculous way. So we've seen a number of plagues through the, the story of Egypt, where God miraculously showed his power. He did it again at the Red Sea. Now he did it with the, with the water. And we talked about how he did it with the provision of quail and manna for food. That was in Exodus chapter 16. And I want to draw your attention to one of the verses that was in chapter 16 that we don't want to forget. In the midst of solving this problem of the people complaining about food, The Lord said to Moses, Exodus 16, verse 4, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you, and each day the people shall go out and gather enough for that day. In that way, I will test them whether they will follow my instruction or not. So God is watching the people in the same way the people are watching God. God wants to know if if they will follow him and do what he says, and they want to know, is this a God we can trust to help us when we're in a jam? 
Well, he has already demonstrated that he could help them, and he would, and he did. And he did it by getting them out of Egypt. He did it at the Red Sea. He did it over the water problem. And now he did it over the problem of food in Exodus chapter 16. But really what God is doing, and he did that through the manna, the provision of the manna every morning, gather enough for that day, but no more, because if they did, it was wormy. But on the eve of the Sabbath, they were to gather twice as much because it would sustain and be usable on the Sabbath. So God was testing them to see if they would obey and follow his instructions. And they were learning, perhaps, uh, maybe not very good students, we would say, but they're beginning to learn how to get along with God. And that's an important understanding of learning how to get along with God. And, you know, that's part of what we need to learn when we think about, do we always think about the worst? Because they cried out to God at the Red Sea. They thought all was lost. They thought all was lost when they needed better water and cried out to God. They thought life is miserable because they focused on the circumstance of quail and manna. And, the, and God provided that for them to satisfy their needs. So it seems like the people in those days had similar problems to us. We, we are selective in the circumstances we focus on. And one of the things that we need to learn uh, through all of this is to focus on a bigger picture. Now, one of the key things that appears in the next story at Rephidim, where they need water again, is that the people were complaining. And if you've been around church, you know that still yeah, sometimes people have complaints. Sometimes it's over the music, sometimes it's over the preaching, sometimes it's over something else. Well, I want to say right up front, the church where I serve has had minimal complaining. I mean, it's just remarkable. And I'm really grateful for that personally because of how it affects me, but also in the larger sense because of how it affects the church. Now, we've had our struggles over decisions sometimes, but by and large, we've been able to step back and look at the circumstances in a way we need to, and God is helping us. God helped his people, and he brought them this far, but their challenge is, are they really remembering what God has done and then considering their problems in light of that memory? And see, that's the same thing we need to do. Yes, there are legitimate circumstances that come up that we need God's help with, but we also need to remember that God has promised to help us. And he was leading Israel in the way they should go, and he was checking to see if they would obey his instructions. If we believe and if we know we are, as far as God has shown us, we are following in the way he wants us to go, then can't we count on him to be with us and to help us? And when we face a problem... Shouldn't we fall back to that position and say, help, I've been doing everything you asked me to do. I'm, as far as I know, faithful to you. Now I need your help. And can't we then have confidence that God will help us? Now, I think one of the problems is we know we aren't doing what God wants us to do. And so when we call out to him, then we have all this bargaining and so forth going on. Well, a lot to sort out with that, and I don't suppose we'll sort it all out here today, but I think we need to think about this. So let's use this story as as a teaching moment. That's why God gave it to us, to teach us to trust him. And their question comes up at the very end, because the Israelites, and I'm reading from Exodus 17, 7, the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? 
And that's a similar question people ask today. Is God with us or not? So let's read this part. It's just a few short verses, really, the incident from Exodus chapter 17. And then let's think out loud and think through them a little bit. From the New Revised Standard Version, Update Edition. From the wilderness of sin, the whole congregation of the Israelites journeyed by stages as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. The people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do for this people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, Go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will be standing there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it, so that the people may drink. Moses did so. In the sight of the elders of Israel, he called the place Massah and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now, it's very interesting that from chapter 16, we have this idea of the Lord testing his people, trying to find out if they will follow his instructions. It continues on in chapter 17, and I hope you didn't miss it at the beginning here. Really quite interesting. From the wilderness of sin, the whole congregation of the Israelites journeyed by stages as the Lord commanded. So apparently they were following the way God was leading them. Don't miss that. They were following and going where he wanted them to go. And so they camped at Rephidim. Now do you think God was surprised? when there wasn't water there for them? I don't imagine that he was, but the people, they go ballistic. I mean, that's not an overstatement. You need to read that carefully. And and they, they challenge Moses, and as Moses says, they're challenging God uh, for, for water. Now, here's, here's the one who had led them, and by God's command had opened the river for them or the lake or whatever it was the water that they needed to walk across to escape from pharaoh and now they're concerned about can he give them water to drink they'd already seen a water miracle what's going on here well it was so bad such an accusation that when you read this you kind of have to begin to wonder if the people thought that actually moses and aaron had water and were withholding it from them somehow because they uh, they were that intense with their statement and and they were really doubting god because they were getting in that position and and thinking that they had been purposely set up to die when in fact god had delivered them more than once from death and yet here they go again doing that now i think part of us need to think about that are we always imagining the worst instead of trusting God for the solution. Now, I'm not one to say that God is always going to give you more than you ever imagined or fix every problem you encounter beyond what you could ever ask or think. But I am going to say that God is with us and he's not going to abandon us. And really, remember that question from the end of these verses, 
that, that Israel kept asking, is the Lord among us or not? And don't we, particularly in light of the whole story of God's people, particularly in light of the resurrection and the gift of the Holy Spirit, aren't we the people who should be able to affirm quickly, readily, absolutely with no doubt that God is with us? Shouldn't we be able to say, well, he promised to be with us, and so as his people, we trust him, he is with us. Could it be that God is waiting for us to, to do that up front? You know, one of the things that, uh, that I've noticed, and I this is a small thing, I suppose, but years ago I was attending church before I became a minister myself, and I would hear pastors at the beginning of a service pray that God would come and be with the people, to be with, in, with them in the service. And as I've gotten older and I've thought about that, why, why would we pray that way? Well, of course, we don't want to take God for granted. Some would say that. But when we look at the Bible, and, and if we believe the Bible, didn't God promise that he would be with us? So maybe instead of praying that he would come and be with us, we should, when we pray, thank him for his presence. We are so glad to be in his presence and so glad that he has gathered among us. We look forward to what he has to say to us, and we're grateful that he was kind enough to join us as we've gathered for worship. Well, we just need to think about things a little differently. That's part of what we need to think about when we think about our circumstances a little differently. Instead of thinking about that, well, look what bad has happened to me, maybe we ought to think about, look what good remains. And I know that's hard. I've been through some unpleasantness in my life, and, and I'm not trying to make that easier than what, you know, you, you know that it is, because it's not always easy. But it is a, a cautionary tale that we look at this story from the Bible, and these folks, they had no reason to doubt that God was with them. None. They had visible, concrete evidence in a way we don't really have these days because he had delivered them from evil. And make no mistake about it, that's the lesson from the exodus from Egypt, being delivered from evil. That was an evil. They were delivered from an evil king, Pharaoh. And if God had done that so visibly and purposefully and intentionally and and with such miraculous effort, and they still wondered, was God with them? Wow, you have to you have to take pause from that and think. We need to learn from their lesson and not get caught up in that. Well, so they're really angry with Moses. Moses is so concerned that he thinks they're they're about ready to kill him. He says that in verse four. And then the Lord gives him some instructions. It's a very simple instruction, very straightforward. Go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Now that doesn't mean that he was going out of the sight of the people. What, what we think that this is indicating is that God wanted all the people to see, especially the leaders, the elders of Israel, especially the people who would influence people going forward. And so he gets out in front of all of them where everybody can see, and he is told, and he does all of these things, to take the staff with which he struck the Nile and go. So not only is he out there where everybody can see, but he's taking this staff. Now, this is the very same staff that he used to stretch out and to, at God's command, and he worked with God, God's partner in this, and the water parted. So people had seen him use that before for amazing things. And so he goes out there, he takes that staff with him, 
the same one he had used at the Nile, and it's very specific about that. I will be standing there in front of you on the rock of Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it, so the people may drink. Now, that's a pretty miraculous thing, to strike a rock and water comes out for people to drink. Now, some people, and there's always these questions that come up, and there's nothing wrong with asking the question. Seek the answer if it can be found and and move on. But people want to ask, well, might there have been water and he just shattered this thin layer of rock, and so then the water was there for the people to drink? Well, to be sure, in that part of the world, there are to be found some places where water is trapped in rock and breaking the rock will get the water. But that doesn't explain what's going on here because this was enough water for hundreds of people. By conservative estimates, there were hundreds of people involved here. And so the the volume of water, the quantity of water would have been huge. And so it strikes the rock and water comes out. And he did it in the sight of all of the people. Everybody saw it. So once again, they have concrete visual evidence that God is with them. And you would think they would learn, and we'll see if they have as we go forward, you would think they would learn that they can have faith. What have we called faith? We've called faith absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. So you would think they and we, reading the story, learning from their lesson, we would develop that kind of absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Now, I'm not sure we've learned that lesson, but I think we should try to learn that lesson because it was a powerful one. It was even used by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament to make a comparison, and he called, by comparison, Christ is the rock. He talked about the water that came out when Moses struck the rock, and he talked about Christ being the one that we depend upon, the living water. And so this story has a powerful impact on, on many levels, in many, on many levels, in many ways. And we shouldn't miss that. See, our rock is Christ. And we have confidence because he did rise from the dead. He de- did and does provide living water to the people that follow him. And we need to think about and consecrate on that circumstance rather than on the circumstance that says, well, I don't have as nice a car, or I don't have as big a bank account, or I don't, whatever. In almost any circumstance, you can almost always find someone who has it better than you do or that I do. That doesn't mean we don't keep trying to do better. That just means that's a recognition that we need to keep perspective. And it's a reminder that we should not be rebelling against God. All right, God wants to know, will we be faithful to trust him? And clearly what they were doing here was rebelling. They were, they were, in a sense, turning away from God and not believing him in the same way Pharaoh didn't believe that God would get the people out. And so they're making this, a similar mistake of complaining. And we need to be careful about our complaining. Now, sometimes we need to point out things that need to be fixed. There's plenty of that goes on. But when we do that, we need to do that from an honest and open heart, not from an attempt to manipulate. And I've said before that too many times people try to manipulate. And when they do, isn't the reason they manipulate because they are afraid? And so I'm going to ask you, are you demonstrating allegiance to God? If you are, then don't you think you can count on him to help? 
If you're demonstrating allegiance to God and you're determined to be faithful, then come what may, can't you trust that God is involved in that and he is with you? God was with his people repeatedly as they left Egypt and with his people repeatedly through the Old Testament and the New, and he'll be with you. We can be certain when we are faithful and give allegiance to Jesus, he will be with us. He promised, I will never leave you or forsake you. Use that circumstance to guide your thinking and don't construct a future hell. I'm Pastor Rick.